London School of Economics, which as you know, some of you who've been around this institution will remember a few grungy things in the background. The fact that we've won the client of the year uh, gives us an incredible kudos, which we have to thank you, but also, of course, thank uh, the team here. The structure of the evening is that we're going to have an illustrated talk uh, by the architects uh, explaining their ideas behind the building, how it was realized. Um, but we're also here not just to celebrate the building, but to celebrate this wonderful new publication, um, which is going to be on sale, or is on sale upstairs, and there'll be um, John and Sheila can sign copies later on if you would like that, and uh, I think you're getting it at a great discount, so absolutely buy it in this occasion. Um, let me just start by relating, in a way, the sort of narrative of this building and then describe who these two wonderful uh, people and wonderful architects are next to me. Um, as I look across the room, there are so many people who actually have been part of this, their, their history in London that it's uh, <coughs> exceptional to see them. It says something about the warmth um, and uh, humanity um, that John and Sheila um, create with their human relationships, but also create with, with their buildings. Um, in the case of this building, um, they won an international competition uh, which had a large number of people who submitted uh, for the application. It was narrowed down to five. Um, and uh, then a committee, which was headed by the then director, Howard Davis, in fact, uh, awarded, um, I think it was a unanimous decision to award the, um, uh, the winning scheme to uh, John and Sheila. And I'm just going to mention two or three people who happen to be here, which is wonderful. So Nigel Hugo, who uh, uh, is still the chairman of the Estates Committee, and... Uh, George Gaskell, together with um, Julian and Ken, have been absolutely fundamental in keeping this project going and believing in it, uh, even though when there were a few sort of difficult times. So uh, it's a great thing to celebrate the client as well as the architect. Um, now, John and Sheila, they've been in practice since 1998, but in fact, some of you in the room have known them for longer than that. And I think I got to know you when you were published in a small journal that uh, uh, some students from the Bartlett, I was one of them, uh, were involved and we started showing the work uh, that they were doing. They both trained at UC University College Dublin and then Sheila went to um, the Royal College of Art where she studied under Edward Jones, who's here from Dixon Jones with Jeremy Dixon. So uh, there's a wonderful continuity here and a strong intellectual, visceral and life enjoyment relationship, I think, between London and Dublin, which really continues to this day and I'll try and capture that uh, in a moment. As I say, I got to know uh, John and Sheila at a time in the early mid-80s uh, that architecture was not having a great time. I think we, we need to remember that. You know, architecture goes up and down, uh, and it was a difficult and dark moment. Not much was being built, and particularly not much by uh, younger architects. Um, and um, there was a rethinking, I think, of some of the uh, forms of architecture that should be named made particularly in reaction to what was then a sort of generic form of modernism and actually even postmodernism. Some of you will remember that word, postmodernism. Those of you uh, who are students here at the LSE now may not have ever heard of that word except in post-structuralism and philosophy. But in architecture, it was a very influential um, and, uh, from my point of view, rather problematic phase. Uh, and many people, including the architects here, were responsible for sort of engaging in a slightly different way in that debate. And um, uh, an architectural critic, a very significant figure called Kenneth Frampton, 
um, was effectively developing the notion of critical regionalism. In other words, how can you be both modern, ask questions about being modern, but how can you also be yourself? How can you uh, understand what the essentials of your own culture, your own country, your own place are? And I think John and Sheila's work are very much part of a group of people uh, working in Ireland, but also uh, internationally, particularly in Europe, uh, who can then fondly referred to in a publication as the Temple Bar Mafia. Now, why the Temple Bar Mafia? Because Temple Bar was a region, and some of you will know it, of a part of um, the city center of Dublin, which really had gone down enormously, had sort of lost its identity, lost its raison d'etre in terms of work and everything else. And it was one of the first areas that we would now call sort of regeneration. And a group of architects called Group 91 which had John and Sheila, but also a lot of other architects of that generation, of our generation, broadly speaking, Shea Cleary, Paul Keogh, Grafton Architects, very, very involved in trying to deal with the problems of the city. Now, this dealing with the problems of the city is, I think, a key to your architecture, a key to that generation, and it is not a natural position for many architects trained at that time um, to have been in. Perhaps now, and I say this... Um, running something called LSE Cities at the London School of Economics, uh, it's, a more, it's more of a given that the urban context in all its senses, social, economic, cultural, should relate and talk to architecture and vice versa. Then I think probably was the beginning of a sort of a new discourse, uh, which is very, very clear, and particularly clear in terms of some of the intellectual references uh, that these architects broadly had, um, and the literature they were reading, the teachers they had, and the projects they realized. In particular, there are two or three names I want to mention here. Um, Colin Rowe, a great uh, theorist, writer, um, historian. Um, Jim Sterling, Michael Wilford, who's also here, who, of course, not only thought and wrote about architecture, but built the buildings which, in fact, encapsulated many of these issues. And John Sheila actually worked with uh, uh, Sterling Wilford at the time of the design and building of what was a canonical building of that period, which was the Stats Gallery in Stuttgart. Um, it's great to see Bob Maxwell here, who's also one of that extraordinary crowd who very much belonged to that sort of generation. So we're talking about two individuals who really have done, made a journey. And the journey is architectural, but it's also national. I mean, in fact, I think your trajectory has followed the trajectory of your country in many ways, both looking in and out. And Europe, uh, United States, have been very much something that has informed your work. You've taught at Princeton, um, at uh, Harvard, and, and elsewhere. So what we will see in the presentation of the work, I think, traces of um, um, very, very subtle moment in mid-19th century, uh, mid-20th century, sorry, architecture, modernism, which is a much softer form, much more poetic, much more narrative form of modernism, inspired by people like Alvar Aalto, Hans Sharoon, let alone the sort of figures uh, that we've talked about, and others like David Chipperfield, uh, Billy Tsein, and, and, and um, Todd Williams in New York, Eduardo Suto de Moura in working in Portugal, I think belong to that sort of um, approach. So in, I'm, I'm going on at some length to contextualize in a way, this building in what is part of a really 25, 30-year-old intellectual movement, which ultimately can only be tested in the making of things. And you have a passion in things that you make. Uh, you're surrounded in your office by bits, I think, so buildings, and you can see it from 
the work uh, that has been done. And I think this, this notion of what I would call a sort of very cosmopolitan, very soft modernism um, cuts through many of the buildings, many award-winning buildings which have been built, from the Irish Film Center at Temple Bar, which is right at the heart. It was one of the first buildings which brought about the regeneration of Temple Bar, to the Lyric Theater, which was shortlisted for the Sterling Award, which is like the Oscars for architecture a few years ago, and the Photographer's Gallery, another building that, you, that was completed here only a few years ago. So we're now here to um, discuss, to talk about, and engage in the ideas behind the Saucy Hawk Student Center, say the result of an international competition. Um, you're going to speak, I think both of you will speak uh, at different times, um, for about 45 minutes or so, and then we have opportunity for questions and comments. I might ask you a few questions, and I know that there are people here who might also have uh, a few questions, certainly from the floor. But let's start by welcoming John and Sheila into their buildings at the LSE. Can we have the lights down as much as possible? Yeah, so you can see the screen. Yeah. I think that's, um, is that sufficient? Do you want them down more? A bit more, maybe. Oh, can more. we bring them down I'd more? like to do it to the dark. Yeah. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ricky, for positioning us um, uh, as if we weren't positioned enough by our friends and colleagues in the audience. Um, Sheila is going to speak about the background to the design of the building that we are now in. And I'm going to speak about the background to the background. But be, let me set some background to the background to the background by saying that uh, we're here on, a, on two anniversaries. Um, one is that we worked out on our way here that it's five years to the week that we were interviewed um, by these people for this building. Um, not quite five years to the day. We think it was the middle of the week, but it's five years to the week. So um, uh, that feels like quite a long time, I have to say. But it also, of course, is a very short time, and um, we have at least something to show for it. We're also here... Uh, uh, we're also here 110 years to the day of that when James Joyce brought Nora Barnacle on a long walk. And um, in 1904, which was the inspiration for uh, Ulysses, which was published many, many years later. Books seem to take longer to make than buildings. Um, maybe they last longer. Um, but here we are on Bloomsday uh, talking to you about a a building that started in Dublin and uh, belongs in London. It started in London for us too. But before it started in London, it started in Dublin. And as far as we are aware, this is the first photograph taken of uh, Sheila talking to me, uh, or me talking to Sheila. Uh, she has the drink uh, in her hand. And um, we made a plan. Uh, if not on this night, on some other similar night, we made a plan to go to Paris together to see the, to track down the purest houses of, of Le Corbusier and to find out the, the, uh, 
the source behind the quote that Sheila had written on her sketch pad that she would have in her bag beside her. And um, when we went to Paris, I think part of what you go to see, you take home with you. And this, um, this kind of starry sky, black and white negative, is all that remains of Sheila's student thesis project. Um, but it's, there are remains in it of um, more than our trip to Paris. There's also some of the other stuff we were looking at, including uh, the housing in Holland, but particularly including um, the influence of our enthusiasm for what we thought was going on in London. And in London, there was a gang uh, called the Grunt Group, who are, who are actually represented here this evening, I'm happy to say. We, we were not taught by those people. Uh, we're too young for them. But we were taught in a room which had been taught, where those people had taught. We, were, we saw their coattails going out the door, and we felt we missed something, so we followed the direction in which they had gone and formed friendships uh, with the likes of Edward Jones and Christopher Cross and Jeremy Dixon, and were influenced by the likes of Mike Gold, who introduced us to Russian constructivism, or at least Anatole Kopp, um, without which we wouldn't be who we are. And it was Edward Jones who was building a kind of undercover purism in a London uh, studio that uh, brought Sheila to study at the RCA, where she did this design work where a curvilinear line resolves the complexity of a, of a site that's jostled by its context. And it seems that we've been working on that project ever since. Um, I call this lecture conversation because it's about the relationship between us in our own conversation, the way we work, and in our conversation with others. And one sign of that is that Ed and Jeremy had made this um, model of the Providen newspaper uh, tower, and Sheila, who was studying with Ed, in, included it in her student drawings. So one passes to another. And that way that line of her student project resolves the site uh, is, built in, is built in the Irish Film Centre in Dublin. So we were watching what Corbusier had done, and I suppose James Starling was also watching that, and he modelled his book so exactly on the complete works. And when we were students in 1974, uh, Jim came to Dublin to, to speak about his work, and uh, it has taken some time to recover from that lecture. He said nothing in the lecture. Um, <laughs> but he had said in print that he believed the uh, shapes of a building should indicate perhaps display the way of life of their occupants. And I would say we're still working out that. And I went to Leicester with some friends in 1974 to visit the building that um, was legendary at our time. We thought it was an old building. It was finished 10 years previously, maybe 11 years previously, which felt like a long time ago. Then I'm going to show you buildings now that are 11 years old, but they don't feel old to us. Um, 
I took it home with me, and this is my student thesis, um, which is very closely related in every detail to what I had been learning from what I had seen. Um, but, you know, these things take a while to wear off, and the feeling of standing in the podium in Leicester with the body of the building above you, with the ground below you, and a ramp leading to the terra firma is certainly also persists in our uh, gallery built 30 years later. I looked out the window in Leicester and saw this impossible roof and then spent a long time trying to work out how to build it in the west of Ireland, um, in the rainy west of Ireland. Um, it has more gutters than you need in the west of Ireland. It is actually the only part of that building that didn't leak. Um, but what we really were learning there about conversation was not about us back to starting Wilford. It was about how to make building form in the landscape. So the conversation here is between us and the rolling land of the West. And last Christmas, uh, in, as you do when you're caught with nothing to do in the holidays, I made a kind of Christmas decoration by joining up all of the projects that were still in my mind of what we had worked on in the last 10 years and snipping them out with the scissors and seeing how they would get on with each other. And uh, I want to talk to you about some of the thoughts that come out of the conversation that our buildings are having with each other. The one is to talk about contrapposto, the way a body sits in space, and how in this picture of uh, Lutchen's house in Lambe, that without moving, your eye can travel up the stairs, your eye can travel towards the light in the kitchen court. You can be in two places at once uh, by the movement that the building is inviting. And we have worked a long time trying to sort that idea out of how a building can shift to contrapuntally shift to be attracted to its setting, that it, you can make a house that is drawn towards an island, or a gallery that's drawn towards the river or towards the trees. The conversation in the gallery was with uh, Seamus Heaney's poem about a ship appearing above them in the air. And we were commissioned to do the Glucksman Gallery at just at the turn of the century, in 1999 or 2000. And um, the president of the university called us into his office after we were appointed. It wasn't a design competition. And he said, I need to know what the building looks like because I'm going to America and I need to raise money. What does the building look like? And we said, mm, no idea. Uh, we don't work like that. We need to meet people. We need to study the site. We need to immerse ourselves in the situation. And Jerry Rickson said, I know that. That is what I love about your work. That is why I picked you for this job. Can you skip that bit and tell me... <laughs> What is the building going to look like? And uh, I said, well, I don't know, but maybe it will be a bit like Seamus Heaney's poem about a ship in the air. So we learnt on Heaney for that. And that site in Cork was so special because it was in the rocks below the university, beside the river, among the trees. And we just said, well, it'll feel exactly like it feels now, but it'll make it seem more clear. And now we go back and the... Uh, building is, we promised not to harm a leaf on a tree, which meant we had to build tall on the site. 
and walk along by the river and the building will look at the trees and the building will allow people to move underneath it. And there's passage inside the building from a kind of a perch-like position to look back to the city. And then recently, that building was finished 10 years ago, and then recently we made a little piece of furniture, which we found the guy who made it decided he would advertise it by photographing it in the window of the building. And I just thought I would show you that, that piece of furniture because it's another conversation between us and craftsmen. The idea was to make a kind of writing desk. We call it a falling dansu, like a Japanese medicine cabinet that falls open by its own weight and that um, it can, it should move. I'll try this one. And it, it, it does this by itself while you're asleep at night. <laughs> and you wake up in the morning and it's all back in its box. So what we enjoyed about that was just working with this guy who was incredibly uh, serious about making. So I thought, if he'll work with us in furniture, why don't he, why don't he make something proper that's only in, in the dream mind? Um, and uh, we were in Rome, and um, we were staying outside the Pantheon and looking at Borromini, and I was sketching a kind of a oratory chapel or something that I suppose every atheistic ex-Catholic Irishman wants to make a tiny wayside chapel. And I thought that maybe Joseph could make one of these for us. Um, we were looking at uh, San Carlino, the Quattro Fontana church of, of um, Borromini, his first building and his last building. His first building in Rome and his last building finished after he died. And I was thinking about volume um, and vessel and realizing that maybe Alto had looked at the plan of San Carlo when he was casting his class to take it out of the out of the shroud or out of the cask in which it had been made. And I was just wondering if you could do that with a something more physical, like a like a structure made in brick. At the time that David Chipperfield asked us to show in the Biennale, so we said we have we will build a shrine in brick at the Biennale. And uh, there were two problems with that. One is the Biennale floor is so delicate that it couldn't take the weight of brick. And the other was that David didn't like the idea of a shrine. A shrine to what? Um, so we thought again about Rome and thinking about the Nolly plan and carved out space and moving from the Pantheon to look for San Carlo and the other side of the city. You walk through the city then you realize you're walking through cross-hatching. And then I thought, well, maybe it's not brickwork, it's just cross we'll make it out of cross-hatching. So we could make the vessel uh, simply stacked in timber. Uh, it became a vessel, which everybody understands what that means. And you pass through the vessel, and having been washed, you emerge in our, the world of our affinities. That includes the things that I have been describing. Um, one of the things that we asked some people to do was to make some work that responded to the theme of vessel. 
Peter Salter made a beautiful drawing of an interior vessel. Uh, Liam Flynn sliced one of his wooden vessels so we could see the cross-section of its interior. Janet Malarney made a cast body part of as a vessel. And then we made studies in conversation with our, uh, we have heroes, and in conversation with our heroes, we made studies of all of their buildings at the same scale in section, only the ones that we could describe as uh, embodied vessels. Every brick that's made in this building is cast in a wooden mould. The clay is dug out of the ground in the Forest of Dean. The trees in the forest are used to make the casings that make the mould. 175,000 bricks in this building come out of moulds exactly like that. Um, we made seven colours of bricks, which are only to do with the sand that's mixed in the brick. We realised that to get them built, we would have to draw them in three dimensions, so all of the bricks are drawn in three dimensions, then rendered into pictures to show to the LSE, that's what it would look like, and then eventually, just to prove a point, gets built. Conversations in Dublin, we have not, we have built around our country, but not so often in Dublin since the <coughs> Temple Bar days. Um, but one conversation we had more in recent years was between place, a place near our office and a place near the docks. Two buildings designed exactly by the same technique. One stands alone in the docklands between its dockers' houses to remind them of their shipping background. It stands on the ground uh, made out of courtyards uh, where the gardens become the shared ground of the, it's like a forest that the building has fallen onto a forest and all the people are playing in the forest. Uh, reluctantly, sometimes, footballers left alone. Um, and the second is a housing project in Dublin that's very near our office, that's in the physical landscape of our city, to which, where we can, uh, where a stone's throw from where we work, and where we're trying to heal the wound caused by road widening, but heal it by uh, stitching it back to the streets and lanes that have persisted in that area since medieval times. Trying to make a place, uh, a pocket place, that can then stand up in the city. It's our attempt, I suppose, to build a chunk of a piece of the remembered city of our childhood. And when we came to London to try to build a new building and that worked itself out to being a reworking of an old building, we were also trying to get this feeling of a sort of a one-eyed, uh, something that hooks into the place where it belongs and makes you see again the place where it stands. Um, and then we can set up photographs that remind us of paintings that we've always loved. I wanted to show uh, one project in Derry, um, which is a precursor, definitely, to the work at the LSE. It's an energetic, hard-working little culture centre um, that comes out of a sketch about pulling people into the middle of a, of a blind site where the only light is from above 
and where uh, operates like like this does now, like a like a medieval courtyard space with people around the balconies, and making that space made us feel that if you if you put a space to work um, by forcing it by pulling at it and pushing at it, that you can bring it to life in some way. And we're trying to do that now in a building we're just about to start in, at the end of the summer in Budapest for the Central European University. We didn't know anything about Budapest. Um, it's a city of courts and passages. And we tried to only just to remind itself of itself by saying that all it needs is to connect courts and passages with new courts and new passages and new pieces of street uh, presence that will encourage you to explore the passageways and courtyards of the university that we are building. So you see the, the kind of mixture of new courts and old courts and the relationship with the Danube and um, the relationship with the, with the uh, lyrical and formal setting of Budapest. Um, this is a talk that's crowded, I know, with thoughts, but you know, I'm just going to say them once and then Sheila will talk about the building. So I have to say something about cats. Uh, Sheila gave me this book for my birthday. It's Alexander Calder's Animal Sketching. It's published the same year as Towards the New Architecture, so there is a structure to this lecture. Um, and Calder says about sketching animals that even a cat asleep has intense action. And so when I'm sketching, like here, the plan for the Lyric Theatre, you are trying to persuade yourself that a building is an animal, it has a body, and it has, within its static form, it has the potential for intense action that is kind of caught in the uh, vital presence of the building itself. Not only cats, but fishes. Um, this is Darcy Thompson's uh, comparison of related species that comes from his book about evolution called Growth and Form. Um, but what I'm interested in here is that the, these fishes know, these are the same fish in a way, except the one on the right has been acted upon by forces that have pushed it into this configuration. So when the theater you are designing doesn't fit on the site that you are given, you can remember what Darcy Thompson did to his fishes. And the type survives, the distortion. In fact, maybe the distortion wakes the type up to make it feel like it's new again. Um, and this is the bone that Corbusier carried in his pocket. Uh, he carried several bones in his pocket, including part of the femur of his cremated wife. But this one he would take out of his pocket to show what he meant by acoustic form when he was describing the chapel at Ronchamp, and what he meant by acoustic form is not about sound, it was about um, the response of an architectural form to the pressures of the site. 
So when we're, if this is the bone in our hand and the sea is on one side and the rock is on the other and the valley is on the other, the building is, is uh, affected by the pressures of it, by the acoustic uh, response to the pressures around it. And the form of that uh, unfortunate building is held in place by the, by the staking of the chimney which is exactly the same strategy that we have here at the LSE, where the, these are the competition drawings, where the animal form of the building is pinned by the, by the lift shaft to hold it all together. And then we were lucky to be commissioned to think more seriously about the architecture of the lift shaft as a pivot point for the whole project around which the space orbits which is related to the space that we had made in Derry, which brings me to the point about circulation. I think we're thinking that just as the ball in the pinball machine is bounced and jolted and finds its way home by obstacles and obstructions, so you can navigate a building now by glances and reflections and incidences and not only by linear clarity but by experience like you are the ball in the pinball machine and you uh, navigate the LSE. So that is the story of the composite functions of the connected forms of the secret life of the inner world of our uh, related buildings and maybe I felt a stream of consciousness would be appropriate to give to you on Bloomsday. Thanks, John. So, I mean, as John has talked about the conversations that our work has been having with itself and with all the people who have influenced us, but I think in particular, we're also always having a conversation with the place and the site and the brief. So the, this project for the London School of Economics was in such a fantastically um, tight and geometrically complex site that we were really excited when we saw the site because we thought this was exactly the kind of thing that we enjoyed doing, working with and against uh, a physical context, but also... Um, a social and <clears throat> educational cultural context that we found um, very exciting. I can't, I sorry, I have to turn that round. Uh, so the site, um, I'm going to do this, is marked here clearly and um, one characteristic is that it's right in the corner of Lincoln's Inn Fields which I suppose is a place known and sacred to most architects as um, being the place where John Soane's house is which is such a wonderfully influential and important building. The other, the site, the LSE campus is not a campus in the traditional sense. It is a, a piece of city. So it's a set of streets and lanes and alleyways, which still has some of the medieval pattern of this part of London, where on the left, Kingsway is cutting through, sort of changing that pattern, and just behind Kingsway is this kind of more complex network of places, which is LSE. And the site for the student centre, not surprisingly to us, was triangular, because it was a period in our life when 
everything we were doing was on a triangular site. So the interest, well, here are John and Eliza Sohn on the balcony of their house 200 years ago, pointing out into the square, across the square in the direction of our site. And I suppose we feel his presence very strongly as we start to try and work in this place. Um, so that's one side of the square. And then on the other side of the square is the buildings that were on the site when we first came here. So this is a photograph taken when we came to see the site for the competition. And you get some sense in this of the uh, compact intensity of this place and of all these different brick buildings uh, jostled up together in conversation with each other. The St. Philip's Hospital, which was on the site, is no longer fit for purpose because there's so many level changes and it was unusable by LSE. So we had a really strong impulse the first time we came here that this was going to be a brick building. So we thought, OK, it's going to be brick but it's going to be a brick building which maybe reinterprets in some way how you might use brick because obviously we're using a different kind of technology than was being used when these earlier buildings were built. And we wanted it to be in that conversation with the context, but we also wanted it to be itself. So this phrase we've used occasionally about work being strangely familiar, I think was very important in how we thought about this little corner of London. More recently, uh, we've been commissioned to do the landscaping, which is almost finished, um, which kind of situates the building in the ground, which is probably quite important to us in terms of how the architecture extends outside the walls of the building, because the form of the building very much comes out of wanting to bring the life of the whole campus of LSE into the building to kind of suck it in and to bring people up through the building, to bring the students up to all the different activities, which this was the first sketch we made in the competition, a plan about this sense of convergence of laneways to say that we wanted to bring the paths from the library, the paths from the other buildings into this site. And although the site was very small for the brief, we decided that we would make um, an external space, which meant that we were making the site even smaller. But so we, met, we proposed in this early sketch a triangular space, which is now the space where the canopy is, because we felt that there was no place of gathering in the campus. The students had no place to collect, that this would be a covered outdoor space, which meant you could meet outside as well as meeting inside, and which would maybe resolve the geometry and the energy of these different um, site factors. Also, at this stage, we kind of wanted to work with and against the geometry of the site. Uh, the brief was very specific about wanting natural daylight, natural ventilation. So we pulled the building back from the, the kind of baseline at the back of the site and made uh, pulled in um, sort of small triangular courts which bring light and air into the building and allow um, natural light and natural ventilation to cross the space. This this is a photograph taken from the um, Pensione Academia in Venice where we were staying when we were preparing for the Biennale in 2004. And there is something about this sense of space and the way these buildings sit in relation to each other, which we felt was very dynamic in the way that the buildings are obviously static, but the way they relate to each other and to the space between them gives a sense of movement 
and a sense of wanting to progress from one part to the other. Um, of course, in this case, it's water, which is flowing anyway. But we, we had that in our minds when we started working with this site. So the competition site plan shows a sense of the space outside the library is the yellow space and the roots being brought into this kind of yellow bow tie, which is an indoor-outdoor reception um, and covered space outside. So we were working with the language to an extent of the neighbouring buildings and using the brick and the similar materials, but we always thought of the building as having its own presence. So it pulls away from the geometry of the site in order to stand um, somewhat separate. And we worked a lot through models um, because it was very much uh, a kind of, it wasn't just a plan, it was a three-dimensional um, concept we had about this building pulling and pushing against the constraints of the site and in response to them. And the brief, the brief was really complex because there was no repetition of spaces, there were no ordinary spaces in a way. Everything was special, there was the venue we're in now, there's gym, prayer centre, dance studio, careers office, cafe. So everything was a different size and everything needed certain kinds of connections and adjacencies. So we thought of it like a kind of puzzle, which we then tried to solve in section and in three dimensions. This is the competition section, which hasn't changed that much. Um, the ground level is a very deep basement, which we're in. So the ground level, which you can see on the right where that person is looking in, uh, we had the sense that while this venue would be in the basement that we wanted it to connect to the street because it seemed like a really important part of the student centre that the place where the students meet and party and have different kinds of events. So we decided to make this space, which is over my head now, which, which has windows from the street. This is the, the section as built. So you can see that there are two, there's a void at the back which brings daylight in and the void at the front, which has a view from the street, but also a view from the pub, which is up there. So there's a kind of sense of interconnection of the buried basement with the upper... You want to use the pointer? Yeah. Thanks. And then the other important thing, I suppose, about the section is, with the building height was very strictly controlled, had to be less than 30 metres in order not to have an extra layer of planning control by the mayor. So we really worked hard with the clients and in various views and meetings to try to get some ver variety of ceiling heights. So the, uh, the first floor, which is where the learning cafe is, has a much higher ceiling than the other floors. And we felt this was important that you would sort of read the sense of importance of some spaces more than others. There's more public spaces. Oh, sorry. So well, this is a photograph of the room we're in, but taken in daylight, in daytime, showing the, the windows uh, from the street here, which look down into this venue space, which is an acoustically lined, incredibly complex uh, acoustic separation of this space, a box and box construction. And within the geometry of the building, um, that's quite complex, and deciding to make these two daily bits at the front and the back really added to the challenge of that. But anyway, we went for it and Julian and Ken went for it and we've built it like this. So this is the plan of the floor we're on. A lot of this floor is taken up with plant 
uh, we're in the venue here with the little um, with stage and at this end and these little kind of chat up booths here and a very big bar at the back and the big spiral stairs which brings you down from the street surrounded by services and toilets etc but when we started the competition we kind of didn't really know what a student centre was we hadn't got a sense of what is the typology of student centre what, what does it you know, what does it relate to? So we kept trying to think of what building type um, it might be. And we thought it was a bit like a club, but not really like, not like a gentleman's club. It was a kind of club for everybody, but it was also a bit like a warehouse. And so we tried to develop a language, um, this house of many rooms language, that would have the brick um, enclosure, and then that within that there are uh, rough oak floors, steel columns, a kind of knockabout warehouse character, which we felt was appropriate and robust enough for the kind of student activity that would be carried out in the building. Um, I've spoken a little bit about the complexity of the context. Um, one of the pieces of information we were supplied with in the competition was a rights to light diagram which, because of the crowding in of different neighbours, was quite complex and had involved a lot of setbacks to different extents on different sides. And we had this feeling because we wanted to find a way of the form of the building unifying these different varied uses and having a kind of integrity that we didn't want to make lots of setbacks. So we made this little um, Perspex model, very small, one to 500 model, it's like a kind of jelly mould. It's a model of the rights to light diagram. So we used it then as a way of testing the forms that we were um, working on. So we made, this is it over one of the models. So we used it as a kind of, we dropped it on to our study models to see if they complied with the rights to light. So we worked through a series of different kinds of models, which were partly about the fact that the sizes of the accommodation varied from floor to floor and also as a way of re reducing the floor plate as we went up to comply with this rights to light. And we worked through spatial and then solid models and I think this one is probably more or less the form that the building takes. So at this stage, in a way this is very much what the building is like now. The form cuts back, leans backwards, but sometimes leans outwards in response to movement and entrance and circulation. So we wanted to make it solid. We wanted it to feel like it was a kind of brick mass, a brick mountain almost. But we also knew we had to make openings and we had to make holes in it to bring daylight in and to allow people to move through. So we were thinking about Gordon Matta-Clark's work and in particular this project he did in Paris before the Pompidou Centre was built where he cut this kind of um, voided cone through a set of old houses in Paris. And so we thought that we could make this solid building and then we could cut these holes through where we need to bring light and uh, view through. I mean, this is the, the competition elevation and in a way... The building is never seen or experienced in elevation. So the elevation is required to be drawn, but it's not really a description of how this building works because the really strong characteristic is that you only ever see it through laneways or at um, obtuse angles. Uh, at the time that I was making those competition drawings, I was also making a lot of drawings of 
paintings of mountains in the west of Ireland and this sense of something that is a solid and has a certain kind of texture and that would respond to light in different ways. Part of the reason for the shifting of the angles is also because we had observed the way light, even a very slight angle in a solid form, when sunlight shines, gives a very big variety of colour and texture. We also were looking at the Paul Clay, this Paul Clay drawing, which we thought of as a kind of brick basket, because while we wanted to make the building a solid brick, as, as bricky as we could, we needed, we had, there were different kinds of conditions within the brief. There were rooms that needed big windows, but then there were some facilities like the prayer centre or the gym, which while they wanted light and a certain amount of view, also wanted a kind of slight privacy screening. So we thought about the bricks as being sometimes solid and then sometimes kind of pulled apart into this perforation, which would allow light through, but which it would also give a kind of texture and movement to the facade. So that was the competition elevation, and this is the, the building as finished. And I suppose you can see here how the light falls very differently as the angles of the building shift. So this was probably the last study model we made during the competition and was the, the canopy is um, pretty uh, diagrammatic but was there and is roughly the same shape. And this was the perspective drawing we made at the time of the competition um, from one of the, the most prominent views but one that was still very much at an angle which the existing building, the uh, St. Philip's Hospital from the same view had this complex brick language, but obviously it was uh, built in a different time and in a different kind of language. And then here's the finished building, which um, for us, I think compared to other competitions we've done, in this case, the building has stayed much closer to the competition image than any other competition we've ever done, which in one way is surprising because it was a short competition and also it was quite radical in its form in a way and it felt like uh, we, ha we had to work a lot with um, the LSE on developing the brief and finalising the brief and there was a feeling that it might change because the brief changed but actually the form and the expression has stayed very much the same. Um, so as John said it's five years since the interview and I suppose the reason for showing this as a drawing is that this landscaping work is almost but not quite finished. Um, it came along as a second contract um, through the course of the building and after planning. There was a lot of discussion with Westminster because this was a, a traffic street when we started, so about pedestrianising the street, which was eventually agreed, and then it was agreed that we would design the landscaping as an integral part of the architecture of the building. So the brick of the floor inside the pub comes out to make the covered smoking area outside the pub. And the building has a kind of shadow of brick that falls on the ground. And then we're going to make the seats and the benches. But back to the competition image again. I mean, we had from the outset this sense of the glimpses and the sense that the campus of LSE is the lanes, and we wanted to bring the lanes in, and we wanted to bring them up. And the drawing on the left, which is actually very small, um, is about this idea we had that the 
the bottom of that sloping brick wall lines up with the left-hand side of this little lane and the top lines up with the right-hand side. So in a way, this canted wall, we hoped, is kind of giving a sense of enclosure as you come down the street to bring you into the canopy and eventually into the building. And I think we are now I know it's going to go in through this canopy as on a kind of tour of the building. So, sorry, I'm trying to see where I am here. So the ground floor plan, Sean shows the competition drawing and this is the, the, the finished building drawing which also shows the landscaping. So we come in here through the canopy. You will have possibly come down this big concrete spiral stairs to the venue. There was a complexity about use, daytime, nighttime use. So there are two entrances to the building. The main daytime entrance is through here into the reception and then starting to move up these big stairs. The stairs, because of this sense that we wanted the building to feel like a continuation of the public realm, we wanted to make the stairs almost like a sort of vertical lane that you would come into the building and feel that you could move up as if you were still on one of those little laneways and that there would be places to sit and particularly at the bottom where it's wider and off the entrance hall where it's like a kind of forum space that you could have meetings the students could sit on the stairs and all the time it's winding around the lift shaft which is this kind of vertical totem and then at the back of the building an elevation which you definitely never see. Uh, well, you could see it if you were in the office block behind. But at the back, there are these also these big cut-out windows and the stairs, in particular the stairs, as it winds around the lift, has daylight and sunshine coming in from this back, um, the back of the site. The, the idea of the, the lift, the lift has a vertical, steady, um, orienting element and then the stairs winding around that and kind of sometimes almost pulling away from the lift to bring you to different functions depending on the extent of their public or otherwise, um, is very much remained in the building. Uh, the stairs is made in, uh, is finished in terrazzo and concrete. And then as you come up around the lift on each floor, the circulation is also in terrazzo. And then when you step out of the circulation, you step onto the wooden floor of the um, Cafe. So, for example, the first floor plan, you arrive up here. The circulation is this terrazzo which wraps around the lift and leads you to the rest, the next flight of stairs. But then you step onto the wooden floor, the warehouse floor of the learning cafe. So the competition image about that sense of arrival and of looking back to where you've come from is reflected in a photograph from the cafe, looking back into the canopy. So when you're inside, you're also aware of the outside and the, because of the geometry of the building from the inside, you often see out to the brick walls whether they're leaning or just canted in plan. And so I don't think I've got every floor here, but this floor is the multi-faith and media floor. Um, so the stairs arrives here and you're in front of the two, there are two glass-fronted uh, studios for Radio, the radio station, students' radio station. So that's one side of this circulation here. And then on the other side is the prayer centre with a little private chapel for individual <laughs> contemplation. Islamic prayer rooms, multi-faith centre here, multi-faith room. Uh, and we have this 
John sometimes describes this as the broadcasting floor. You're either broadcasting on the airwaves or you're broadcasting up into the heavens, but you're in the middle of a lot of broadcasting. The concrete stairs winds sometimes back on itself and sometimes around the lift, defending on the function of the floor in question. This is the uh, student union offices and the um, residences and meeting area. So this is a floor of mostly offices with the big meeting area for the students in the middle, the seating and laptops and reception, uh, which where the stairs, because the building is... Tilting in from the back because of the rights to light, the stair space becomes narrower as you move up. But then if you come into those offices uh, behind the perforated brick wall, you come to the big windows, which relate straight out to the streets of the campus. And we were working quite specifically with the form in, and the plan shape of the neighbouring buildings. So here we were kind of talking to the geometry of the parish hall, which is this nice brick building next door, but also trying to give a longer view down into the campus. And I think really trying to bring the buildings that are outside into the building. So as you experience student entry, you're also feeling the pressure of the other buildings in the campus. And then as you move up the stairs, on the half landings, you see up and down. So here you see up to the gym and down into the meeting rooms, which are part of the residences. The gym had to, there's a few factors in the gym. One was it had to have no columns, and the other one was that it was required to be a kind of long interconnected space that runs the full length of the plan. So it's the only place in the building where you come in a door here, and then all of the length of the plan is one function. So the gym runs from uh, the wide end down to the narrow end. So at this point, it has a glass wall out to the to the landing, but it's it it runs the full length. And you can see the uh, perforated brick wall here, giving a kind of light, but a screening to that space. As the stairs moves up, it sometimes is touching the lift and it's sometimes pulling back, so that you can see down and the voids connect from one floor to another. And then on the fifth floor, which is the careers office. Uh, by now, the, the wall at the back here, this pointer isn't working. the wall at the back on this side has now started to move in so that there is actually not room for the stairs to go back around the lift. So the stairs changes to a spiral stairs. So the, the terrazzo floor goes across in a little kind of bridge and brings you up the spiral stairs past the careers office up to the very top floor, which is uh, the little cafe and dance studio. And which is in its footprint quite smaller than the than the floors below because of the you can see on this side that the tilting the shape of the wall below is tilted in and then there's a roof terrace stepping back to allow the students to uh, get fresh air and daylight as they are using the cafe at the top and also to comply with the rights to light diagram. So the building kind of contracts as it goes up and then the top floor also has a sloping ceiling so you feel the sense of the shape of the roof. And then from the roof terrace, you can see the chimneys, which hold the corners. And uh, there's, there are actually two terraces outside the career office and the cafe on the top floor. This was the planning model. Um, so top floor again. That, little, that triangular window then is like the very culmination of the building and gives you the view back out over the campus, but also over the London skyline and a sense of... Um, 
destination, which is, um, if you then go outside and look back, this was the site uh, before the building was built. So looking back um, from the campus, the St. Philip's Hospital was here, and now the student centre is in this location. And so one of its big opening windows are these triangular windows in the corner, which is the student union offices and the, the other offices looking down the street. And then the chim there are two chimneys which hold the two corners as the building kind of cants in to comply with its uh, requirements. I mean, John mentioned that there are a lot of bricks in the building, and he said there's 175,000, but there are well over 100 special bricks because we decided that we wouldn't cut any bricks so that every brick is cast as a special. And then we had both a fantastic brick supplier and a really amazing um, brick subcontractor who really rose to the challenge and actually really enjoyed and loved making this um, piece of structure. I mean, in a way, this photograph, well, it summarizes one aspect of the building, which is about the sense of trying to make um, a building which uses traditional materials and in, to some extent, their traditional form, but which reinterprets them. And in response to the place it's in, to the brief that's in it, and to the other forces like the rights to light force. And then which gives us this sense of varied texture and light acting as um, almost like an ingredient of the experience of the form of the building from the outside. I think that's, that's the last image. Thank you. Lights up, please. And um, hopefully, there's also a microphone, roving microphone for any questions. Thank you both for that. I mean, very important and very interesting to um, to hear the long perspective and then the detailed analysis. And just reminds us how buildings are never things on their own. And there's a, a depth of history uh, which goes from everything, from the crafting of the bricks to the references to the space, the color, the light, and everything else, which is I find very touching, very informative. Um, is it possible to have the lights up so we can see the faces of people in the audience? That would be great. Um, let, let me just ask you one question. I mean, we're having the, the conversation in the building. The building has now been in occupation for uh, some time. It's much loved. It's a building which, which the people who use it uh, the, the, the consumer, the user, enjoy being here. Uh, there are certain, I think, students and Julian, you might want to come, come uh, back on this, uh, have found their favorite little corners. You know, and, and, uh, um, and I'm not saying there's competition to rush to the best place in the, on the top floor bar, but there, there is, certainly in, in the wider neighborhood, it's seen as you know, a very slightly secret space at the moment, uh, which connects to the city from the rooftop and all that. I don't know whether you've had an opportunity to actually see the building in use. And if so, this is my question, what, what, what has surprised you? But maybe you haven't. Well, so. no, the, the top floor is the thing that has changed most in the course of the design, I think, actually. Um, we didn't have the top floor in the initial project. In fact, in the initial project, we had 
the prayer center up there struggling to uh, find Mecca. Uh, the top floor evolved, and it's like a it's like an extra space. It's like the attic, and so in the course of design development, we changed the scheme around so that the what I'm what I call the baby elephant, you know, the little spiral stair, is the connection to the attic, and then the the fat elephant, the mama elephant, is the connection to the basement. So the basement and the attic are, the stairs are over each other, but they, they're remote from each other. That wasn't in the competition design. Uh, when we come here now, we go up and sit in that little window on the top floor, and we're amazed at how quiet it is up there. And... Um, Every time we come, people say to us, it's quiet today because it's exam season or it's holiday season or something. But we, it doesn't, I mean, it's, maybe we just haven't seen it in full rip, you know. But we've seen it quiet and it's, uh, that suits us. But having, having been only an occasional user yeah. to visit uh, the building and see the spaces, actually, there's something about the oral experience of this building which relates also to the spiral, you know, yeah. the, the notion of movement, so that actually not only are you guided by light, but also by sound. You suddenly you go around and, and you hear noises yeah. of a group of people, or you hear quietness. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. that, that is something... Do you have, is that something you think about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that we... You know, I described maybe very practically the way the, the stairs works, but we always thought that it would have these corners and nooks and places people could meet, and that there, and maybe an essential part of the brief for the student centre is that it would have loose-fit space where people could have conversations or meetings which are not formal, but which are essential to the life of being a student. Um, I think the, it was interesting, because we've built quite a lot of buildings with concrete ceilings and a lot of concrete and brick and hard materials, and sometimes there are acoustic issues, and so we decided that we would just have to take it on here. And so we actually used quite a lot of acoustic material in ceilings and on walls, and we were really trying to work with... Um, I mean, John talked about Le Corbusier's idea of acoustic as being something not to do with sound, but we were... So we were trying to get that sense of enveloping or enclosing, but also to try and quiet down the sound in places so that actually there wouldn't be a kind of cacophony. And... I mean, that's been interesting, and I think it kind of works. So again, as John said, we've been here a good few times, but it's never been absolutely um, full of people. But it's been, I mean, the Learning Cafe has been full a lot of the times we've been here, and the acoustic seems to work. Um, I don't know if we're, you wondered if we were surprised by things. Um, I don't know, I think not. Not really. <laughs> I think it's Another thing which struck me is particularly, uh, you know, when you were showing the pictures of, of the building completed, and obviously pictures taken by very good architectural photographers without anyone there, yeah. um, was the rather striking use of colors. Now, you haven't said very much about that. You know, I mean, the colors are very, very particular. What, what, well, what we, was the, yeah, the rationale? We have this idea that uh, we're not interested in colour, uh, but it keeps coming up. Um, so we, I think, uh, so we, we've decided to assign 
colors to things. So steel, um, steel is born red and that's the way God made it. And the sky is blue. So if there's something that is filling a gap that isn't structure, then it can be blue because it's not there. Mm -hmm. Then yellow mustard is a good color because it cuts the red that stops the steel being too confident in itself. And so it has continued until we find we are surrounded by colors uh, which have reasons for being. The reality is Sheila paints in watercolor all the time and it was going to work its way in and it just had to find a way of allowing itself in. We're saturated in color now. Um, the next building is going to be a box <laughs> with no color. <laughs> but uh, it's not just paint. I, th I think we like materials that have their, in their integral color in, their s in themselves. So vitality or even luminosity comes out of the way the wood weathers or the fact that the brick is uh, multitudinous. When we met the people from the brick, they told us, you know, the problem with handmade brick is it's very hard to ensure that the colors will be consistent, and we know architects want consistent color. So we said, can you show us all your inconsistent colors as quick as possible, and we'll use them all. And, um, in fact, we had to edit it down because some of their inconsistent colors weren't acceptable. Uh, so we have seven colors. But I, I in your mind, um, it's like every book it should be a black and white book. You know, um, architecture is black and white museum, but color, you know, keeps breaking through. That's it. Can, uh, Sheila, as you were talking about um, the the reading of the urban context, which mm. I, I found very powerful, very persuasive, very uh, informative as to how that, in a way, determined the shapes of the buildings, both externally as sort of envelope, but also internally as as sequence. Um, I was reminded of s some of the writings of, say, Richard Sennett, a colleague of mine and well-known to many uh, people here, who, as, as an effective an urban sociologist, but also commentator on uh, form, talks about the, 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 the importance of being able to get lost <laughs> in a city. Uh, the, 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 one of the great qualities that we all aspire to, you know, that picture you had of Venice, for example. Mm. I'm not saying that... Um, the little lanes around here remind us of the alleys of Venice. But there, is a, there are moments of um, spatial complexity uh, uh, around here which, which tell the story of time mm -hmm. uh, and overlaying of different sort of uh, urban moments, different historical periods with Lincoln's and Fields just the corner and then the rather rude intervention of the 19th, 20, early 20th century of Kingsway. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a cut-up mm -hmm. site yeah. uh, in, in many ways. And um, what Richard in his writing always talks about is, you know, the, the importance of trying to obtain complexity. But it seems to me that there's, there is, there's a cost question, which is over, over complex space perhaps loses sense of legibility and orientation. And, and this is something which is very interesting seeing the the seven or eight projects you showed, how you've been... I mean, you started with Borromini. Yeah. I mean, in a city of Rome where I was lucky to 
be brought up in, which, even though Baroque is very straightforward, it's actually very linear, it's not, you know, it's, it's sculpted. Can, can you say a little bit about whether you struggle with that, whether it's, is that a tension in your work that you, um, you, you, you think is there? Um, can one go too far? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think it is a struggle and a debate among us and between us and between other people in the office. When we were doing this competition, um, it was somehow very intense and we started this thing and somehow it evolved into this form. But there was a certain amount of anxiety in the studio about it and people saying, oh my God, can it be so... But actually... Oh my God, what? Too, too you know, is this thing is much. this thing too much? You know, is this shape too much? But we, I think we would contend that when you come here and walk through the building, that while I mean, a lot of people have said to us when they see the drawings, it looks very complex and yeah. maybe complicated, which is a much worse thing than complex. Um, but that when you come to the building, you understand it because. Um, of the way the, the circulation works and the movement works and the light works to orient you within the site. And also, I think, because of the way it does talk to the rest of the site. So it was, a, I think it was a kind of risky project because maybe while we have, as you say, our work has been evolving and some of more recent work has been more geometrically complex than our earlier work, um, I think we really we really felt that it was a response to the site and that we were just working with the stuff of the site, but also the brief. Um, the triangular site, you know, I mean, I think there were three in a row. There's the Lyric Theatre, the site's almost exactly the same shape as this, as this, the Timberyard housing. I mean, we, we were going through a period where we just not another triangular site. And in a way, you know, that in itself has, gives you something that you have to work with or work against to start. But I, I think what I, was, um, what I was trying to say in, in the introduction is that I think we are, got ourselves interested in the idea of approaching simplicity through complication rather than relying on a simple diagram and trying to find a way of embellishing it to find enrichment. We put ourselves in the worst corner that we can get into and then try to make sense of that so that the overall organism has a unity and has a, has a strength that we can keep kind of chivy, you know, chipping away at. So um, the unfortunate thing about projects is you have to finish them and um, in order to build them. I mean, obviously there are two problems building and clients, but uh, in life, I mean, but or not, or not having enough buildings and not having enough clients. But the opposite is everything is a problem. But when you're working and whittling and trying to, you know, just say, you know, just cut a bit off here, it's good to have something that is, that is fighting back. Um, so we're not trying to complicate people's lives. We're just trying to think that some struggle between form finding and the search for simplicity. No, I'm just saying, it, it might it be actually an aspiration of yours as designers to 
not think it's too bad that people might get lost <laughs> in some parts of the building. Um, is that, is that or feel they're on a journey, or feel that the thing is unfolding to them. Uh, let, let Julian, Julian Robinson, who's who is the client? <laughs> I, I want to ask you the same question. Is there a microphone? Yeah, up at the front, please, here. Uh, the same question that I asked the architects. Um, what has surprised you in seeing the building realized and occupied? Well, I'll take a different view from John. Um, I'm, I'm surprised you weren't surprised at this building, uh, because when we appointed you, I thought, yeah, this is going to be a really good building. In reality, it's turned out to be a great building. It's full of surprises for me. Um, little such as you go to the top floor of this building and if I can say to everyone this is a very open and democratic building you can walk in and you can go all the way up the stairs to the top floor to the attic as John describes it and there's a wonderful little space at the rear of the um, uh, sort of cafe point where you can sort of walk and then look down uh, down the stairs and you sort of look over this sort of a concrete balustrade and you've got this void going all the way down the stairs, and the wall is an inclined concrete wall which sort of pushes over to uh, get within the right sunlight envelope, and that is just a magical space. And, and John's also alluded to the other one, the little triangular window at the top where you have views uh, right the way through to the rest of the LSE campus. But, I mean, this has just exceeded um, all expectations. I mean, from the... Uh, drawings, the initial drawings, yeah, it looked a really um, exciting building, looked really quite sort of um, strange, uh, but in reality it's, it's come out even better. Nigel? Nigel, you go. Um, the question I would like to ask is really in terms of uh, what I find some of the happiest moments are looking out rather than looking in, and the little views... Um, a number of them unexpected and that kind of serendipity I was wondering whether that was just a function of the positioning that you talked about or whether you were specifically had in mind some of the way because a number of the other buildings you talked quite a lot about the views that, um, and positioning relative to those views, you said less about that here and I, so I was just wondering whether that was whether that was a, a function of the, of, the, of the way that you'd looked at it or, or, or purposeful well, absolutely. I mean, I, the first sketches that Sheila showed for this project, and, um, you know, we had the experience very recently of pulling out the portfolio that we did in May 2009 and found uh, all of our design drawings, one on top of the other, you know, through overlay. But they're all about pulling the lines of the streets into the site, seeing where they would end up, putting yourself at the end of that line, and finding a way back out from there. So this building is intended to be... That's why we adopted the term conversation for this talk. This building is intended to be the speaking back of the building to the place in which it finds itself, to reveal the place to itself through that exchange. So from the absolute start, we were thinking, being inside, looking out. It just doesn't appear on the drawings. Um, and the point that Julian made uh, about the cafe was a complete surprise. That's the point I said that the top changed more than anything. We were actually building a kitchen into that corner, and we were on site, and I just thought, wait a minute. And we're just 
blocking the, the final, you know, the point, the, the reveal moment. So then you have to come back to the committee and say, you know that kitchen that's against the wall? We're thinking of moving it, and, um, which is not allowed. Uh, and then actually, it's a convenient thing that if you can explain what you have done in just simple terms of I made a mistake, um, then people will forgive you. So I remember saying to Andy Farrell, who's on the project, I made a mistake, and which he thought was very noble of me to admit it, but it was only to be allowed to move the kitchen. And so we described the kitchen then as a beach cafe and threw it out in the space, and then we got the space that, that we discovered on site, actually. Uh, wasn't in the drawings. We have time for a few more questions. My, any hands up? Any questions? Um, here in the front, Edward Jones, blue shirt. Uh, John Sheila, lovely talk. Enjoyed it enormously. Um, I came in looking where I might sit, and I realized where I'm sitting, I'm looking straight up through a window to a parapet, and there are pigeons on the top of it. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I, I think these are all windows, yes. Yep. So this room is full of light where you're not showing pictures. So... Um, I think that's amazing to be in the room that you've been talking about and see the relationship to the outside. I think the last speaker just said that the building acts as a, as a frame or a mechanism to look outside. So from the lecture theatre one seeing that. Fantastic. My, my, my sort of um, comment is I, I remember when I first saw the drawings, I said to John, what are you doing a wigwam in, um, in uh, the LSE camp, Camasol? And he looked at me in a kind of irate and, and irritable way and said, it's goddamn rights of light, he said. And, I mean, don't, don't play with me. You know. um, my only play back to him is that, and to she Sheila, is that one of the images I have of this building has something to do with the Po Valley and those elementary structures which have big screens of brick, hit and miss, so void, solid, void, solid. And in your presentation, you don't speak about the Po Valley at all, and I'm surprised. Thank you. Um, yes, we, we looked at lots of, actually not just the Po Valley, but also found in England and Wales and other places, these sort of often farmhouse, farm structures, dovecots. I mean, that was a bit sensitive because there was an issue about pigeons when you mentioned pigeons. But once we proposed this, which which was a reference to, to those kind of buildings, but it seemed like a solution to this idea of how do we keep it solid and perforate at the same time. Um, the pigeon story was, uh, yeah, the, the planners got very worried that it would just be a big uh, dovecot, pigeons would land in every... So we had to do one of our architects, Kirsty Smeaton, who was very involved in the project, spent, became an absolute expert on pigeons. We did a very substantial pigeon report for the planning. And I think Kirsty made some discovery that the way pigeons land meant that the dimension of a perforation on a brick is actually too small and they can't land in it. So um, this is really answering your question. make a sparrow report. That's what John always said after the What about sparrows or even smaller birds? I also think pigeons could evolve maybe to learn how to land in a gap of a brick. So, um, 
Yes, of course, it, it is thinking about that kind of um, uh, agricultural, but almost kind of industrial agricultural, um, traditional way of, of building. Um, John? Well, um, I'm glad you were looking for more references from us. Well, I thought there was too many, but um, <laughs> it goes against our training. But uh, the thing about bringing light in through cracks, um, we had to fight a lot for that uh, because, I mean, fight against the reality because this is a sound-isolated box we're in now. And I'm happy to think that while we're here and through that glass is the World Cup in the pub upstairs and I don't think they can hear us. Um, I, I can't hear them. But we could hear them outside, so maybe this sound isolation works. But it had to work through glass, and we wanted light at the back and light at, like snorkels of light. And uh, that took, I mean, from the, from the project team point of view, that took some defending. For me, the, uh, there should never be a room that doesn't have a bit of light in it somewhere, you know, even a dark room like this. And they can use it during the day, and it has its own function. But it was more the feeling of um, complexity to say the street is passing by, you don't forget about it. Every time, you know, when you're in the prayer room, you can kind of know the gym is nearby. It's a mixed up building, and that is its, uh, that is the implicit brief um, to make something that doesn't feel segregated. Uh, and we haven't, I mean, maybe that was the challenge that this project sets that is very special, because we didn't know what it was going to look like when we started. Any other questions? George Gaskell, over in the middle there. George. Uh, thank you uh, so much. That was a wonderful um, history through the building, and I much enjoyed being involved. I, I did wonder, though... Um, in your conversations and uh, Joycean moments, whether there was ever a voice which said what the school should do with that blooming, awful building, the parish hall, right beside your wonderful design. Yeah, we have very strong views about that, George. You should treasure that building. <laughs> so the, the parish hall is the small brick building right behind The us. parish hall is the, par is the, is the, is the grit in the oyster. Uh, we wouldn't have this project if it wasn't for the parish hall. And actually, our building is a vote in favour of holding the parish hall. We, we like the we like the bits that are um, we like the bits that endure. I mean, Julian was saying that this building is designed to last a hundred years. He was saying that as a strong act of faith from the client. We were standing on the street and I was saying, Julian, most of the buildings around here are a lot older than 100 years. I'm not aiming for 100 years. <laughs> and um, get, get used to it, George. It's a lovely building. The parish hall. Yeah. Not yeah. ours, the parish hall. We really like the parish hall. <laughs> I think we have time for a last question. The last question to Bob Maxwell could be the beginning of a three-hour uh, discussion. So, Bob, be, be brief here. One second, one, one moment. Yes. Wait for a microphone. Just one moment. I don't really have a question. Uh, I have an observation. Uh, I was very happy when John said that they approached simplicity through 
difficulties or contradictions. It's full of complexity and contradiction. It's full of it. And yet, wherever you look, there is something that calms your soul. And I think that that is the power of beauty. Looking at your pictures, I see nothing but beauty in the way they are finished. And I congratulate you on having that inner eye. I'm tempted to stop there. <laughs> No, just a few few things just to uh, wrap up. Um, John, you showed that amazing image of the tilted, squashed fish, uh, saying that your schemes have been really about making it fit. What animal is this building? It turns out to be a mountain, I think. What is That's it? Is there, is there an animal? I think we're going to have to get back to you on that. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> have I'm a just wondering whether you in the had, office, you maybe. Sort of what animal feeling. is the. What animal? Do you have an idea? Oh, I know you're just stretching. <laughs> we, should, um, we should set that as a quiz. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, some of us, of course, had to um, uh, worry when, when the project was invented uh, because uh, the program which I'm lucky to run here at the LSE, was actually located, as Stephen and William and many others know in the room, in the building that was demolished, in fact, in a sort of mortuary because it was a hospital <laughs> on the third floor. So we were waiting to see with great attention what would happen once our building was demolished and the new one was there. And boy, would I be much happier sitting in the same space up there on the third floor because it's actually one of the best lookout spaces in London. Anyway, you've done the LSE proud. We, we, as an institution, are very fortunate, actually literally proud, to have a building of the sort, not just for having won the awards that we have, but because it, uh, you know, it's the first time nearly uh, that we have something in architecture and in contemporary architecture which is as good as the brains of the students who are here, which is, uh, I think, very, very important. And the students feel that, and, and you, there really is that uh, sort of dynam dynamism um, in the air. Um, now that you've been shortlisted with this building, we collectively have been shortlisted with this building for the um, Sterling, uh, you, you were shortlisted, I'm sorry, uh, a few years ago, and we won the London uh, Building of the Year. There is a question, and we're all going to look with great attention in the next months as to whether you get shortlisted for the Sterling Prize. And of course, you know, the mere fact that we're using these names, that some of you in the room, uh, it doesn't resonate as much as it to others. James Sterling, one of the greatest architects in Britain, who worked on, in a way, many of these themes and inspired John, uh, you in particular, with that Leicester building. Uh, the fact that the prize that we hope you're going to get later this year is in Jim's name is just a very elegant sort of um, a bracketing of, uh, of, of the evening. Thank you both for uh, not only telling us why the poetry, the, the, the love, the passion, the intelligence that went into the building, but for making this building for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Books will be signed and purchased. <laughs>